0: The Knowledge Series,
1: a podcast from Thomson Reuters.
0: Hello, my name is Ben Firth. I'm head of client management for Haiku Contract Express at Thomson Reuters. And today we are speaking with Tom Condon, who is the head of knowledge for the military personnel at NATO. Really looking forward to today's discussion and a privilege, I guess, to, to have a chance to speak to someone within NATO it's such a large organisation covering a huge diverse range of challenges and i think it'd be really interesting to dig into some of those challenges if we're allowed to but also understand from a technology and knowledge side you know how have they coped with the last sort of 18 months around the pandemic from a working remotely uh, situation it's a very hot topic at the moment talking about hybrids working in the office out of the office and the technologies to meet those challenges so it should be a good chat the knowledge series well hello everybody and uh, welcome to episode two of our knowledge management focus podcast series a short season of episodes dedicated to exploring the art of knowledge and in today's episode we look forward to tacit knowledge and we're joined by tom condon head of knowledge for military personnel at nato this is something that for me personally i'm very excited to be discussing today so welcome tom and i'm really excited to see where this takes us so before we get into the weeds of NATO uh, and TACIT, It's such an intriguing question. And I would like to understand, how did you end up working for NATO?
1: Well, Ben, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. I ended up at NATO after being a project engineer and a project manager for the US government for about 10 years in the the US. And then I got an opportunity to work in Germany around 2003. And that job had a information and in knowledge management aspect to it it was a little bit a bit of satellites and networking and a little bit of information and knowledge management so i got to move over to germany which was a lovely place to live i quite enjoyed that and our son was two months old at the time so that was quite quite hectic but uh, new country new baby and uh, worked there for about uh, six years doing uh, various information knowledge management type jobs and then my wife's brother actually sent me a link to a job at NATO headquarters saying, hey, this looks perfect for you. So I looked at it and it did look perfect for me. I really didn't know much about NATO at the time. I mean, I knew you know, basic, basic things, but I was like, well, let's, let's give it a try. Let's apply for that job. And, and I applied for the job in uh, 2008 and I got interviewed and I got the job and I've been doing knowledge management at NATO ever since.
0: Amazing. I can imagine your job interview, you were were questioned about NATO and you regaling sort of high school history lessons around how it was formed and the reasons why, trying to show off your historical knowledge.
1: A quick Google uh, fix that fine, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Very
0: good. Very good. So interesting. Are you you a qualified legal practitioner of any sorts or have you moved into this world in a, obviously, clearly in a different way?
1: I am not a legal practitioner practitioner but i'm a certified knowledge manager so i, I do have uh, actually two different certifications on knowledge management but that yeah it's not not my educational background was in actually electrical engineering so uh, it's all through certifications and learning on the job
0: and that's very interesting we for me personally you know i work in very much that kind of th- the, the legal world and There is a very, a much a trend of, you know, qualified lawyers moving into knowledge and, and and so forth. So it's fascinating to see that you've, you've worked your way around that system and then it's been very successful so far. So a question really, you know, for someone off the street, and this really is going to test your Google knowledge, you know, in a very quick summary, before we get into this kind of the tacit world and the challenges, you know, what is NATO?
1: I thought you might ask me that question, so uh, I did prepare a little bit.
0: <laughs> Sorry, it had to be asked.
1: I did prepare a little bit for that. Uh, I don't have it off all off the top of my head, but I'll give you the quick uh, one or two-minute summary, if that's sure. okay. Yeah. So after after World War II, around 1949, the US, United States, Canada, and several Western European nations uh, got together to sign the uh, Washington Treaty which was an agreement to provide collective security against the Soviet Union, primarily. There were other reasons, but that was the big one at the time. That's really you know, how it started. But now uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, is one of the world's largest and oldest international institutions. It's a political and military alliance that brings together now 30 countries from Europe and North America. Uh, the purpose is to guarantee freedom and security of its members, so the member nations, all 30 nations, through political and military means. It promotes democratic values and enables members to consult, cooperate on defense and security-related issues, solve problems, build trust, and in the long run, prevent conflicts. So that's really the, the end goal, is to to talk and not fight yeah. is, is, is NATO's, uh, NATO's mandate. But NATO is also committed to peaceful resolution of disputes. So if if diplomatic efforts do fail, it has the military power to undertake uh, crisis operations. These are carried out under the collective defense clause of NATO's founding treaty, Article 5 of the Washington Treaty. And that uh, you might know when 9-11 happened, uh, they, they invoked Article 5 when that situation happen. Under Article 5, either un- or under a UN mandate or alone or in cooperation with other international organizations, NATO can undertake uh, these these missions. A NATO decision is the collective will of all 30 countries. So every decision has to be agreed by all 30 members uh, around the table. So if one nation does not agree on something, you go back to the drawing board and you rework it. And until all, all nations agree, then you, you, have a, uh, you can carry out whatever it is you're planning to do. Hundreds of officials, including military and civilian experts, come to NATO headquarters where I work each day in Brussels, exchange information, share ideas, help prepare decisions when needed, and in cooperation with the national delegations and the staff members at NATO headquarters, they all work together to get uh, those decisions made and things implemented. There's about a dozen different NATO bodies spread around the world, employing about 6,000 staff. But in NATO headquarters, where I work in Brussels, there's two main sections. There's international staff, uh, which is about 1,500 staff that deal with political decision making process. And then there's international military staff, which is around 500 people, and that's where I work. They deal with the military decision-making process. So the IMS uh, consists of both military and civilians uh, from all 30 nations, and IMS provides strategic military advice to the North Atlantic Council on aspects like policy, operations, and transformation. Almost finished, but the IMS where I work is headed by a three-star uh, general who's called the director general, and there's five different divisions and 10 different offices. So that's my... Wow quick little wow. overview of nato
0: amazing i mean such a big organization you know such a global organization now and such such powerful one at the same time so so just bringing this back into that the, the world of knowledge you, unlike maybe a law firm or a private practice or a corporate practice you know the the knowledge and the information you have to capture to make decisions is is on another scale so how valuable or or how how valued is km within your organization
1: that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, knowledge and, and information and knowledge are really the currency of our organization, right? We don't we don't make money. We just we really just collect a knowledge and, and make decisions. So it is very important, but it's interestingly it's not viewed the same way across all of NATO. As you said, it's a big it's a big organization. So depending on where you are, I think each NATO body's got a little different view on on knowledge and, and how to manage it a lot of organizations really just see information management. They don't really even use the term KM or know about KM. They just they manage the information uh, products and uh, records and make sure, and that's very important from a legal perspective, is to make sure that all the documents and decisions are properly archived and, and secured and, and made available if there is some legal review. So that is a very important aspect. But that's a completely different thing than the knowledge management to me. So, it depends who you ask. Uh, the term in NATO is more information and knowledge management. They kind of combine the two, and so you'll see on a lot of people's uh, business cards or whatever, they're they're in information and knowledge management. And there's only, to my knowledge, only a handful of people that actually just have KM on their on their business cards. And I'm one of those those few people that really just focuses on the the knowledge piece. You have to have good information management before you can do good knowledge management. So I think that's a foundational piece. And other NATO bodies, they look at it more from an IT perspective. It's more just like, let's give everybody these tools, these uh, collaborative tools, and and let them go at it. You know, it's the Wild West uh, kind of mentality. And that doesn't, work very well most of the time so luckily in my organization in ims we kind of look at all all the aspects the information management the knowledge management and the it piece as well as training to make sure it all comes together properly
0: yeah that's very interesting there's been a a blurred line between technology and information for so many years and now they are coupled together in, in terms of D- to deliver a, a service to your to your users or your clients is so much more than than ever before really so that's really interesting in terms of how ha- how you define it and you, you know if we we take that a step further you know that the, the key thing around here is this is tacit knowledge to coin the you know the google phrase you know you know if we you know, if someone was to google tacit knowledge you know as the man off the streets you know i would answer it it's it's the information that people never write down and it's the information that sits, and sits in people's heads and is often never used and maybe lost. Is that a challenge within NATO? Um, and I can only imagine it might be considering the scale and also the turnaround of staff within the, the incumbent positions.
1: I think you nailed on the head there with the the definition of what's tacit knowledge. It, you know, it's really, it's that stuff in your head. It's it's your experiences and education and and everything you've gone through in your life to build up what you what you know. So, it's a very hard thing to manage. Actually, it's uh, tacit knowledge is probably one of the, the the hardest things in my mind to manage. Uh, you know anything else, you know, people, technology, resources. There's a lot of uh, examples of how to properly manage those things, but test knowledge is is, is very difficult. So, it, it is very important.
0: And I can only imagine as well for your people, like in a law firm world, you've got uh, lawyers who are drilled in information capturing and, and documentation. You said earlier, you're, you're headed by a th- your three-star director general and his backgrounds may not be in the same way. And, and you've got this sort of layer of, of ranking officers and their their whole career has been about you know taking decisions on the ground and and making decisions you know uh, calculated but here and now and very rarely would that be historically maybe documented to allow you to learn from those decisions. Um, and that's probably a challenge to manage really.
1: Indeed, it is, especially with 30 different cultures, basically 30 different nations, all with different levels of, of understanding of the situations. And most people don't even know what, you know, knowledge management is when they they come here. But I, I try to educate people as much as I can on why, why we have an office called knowledge management and why we do what we do. Uh, But the rotation, like you mentioned, in the military is especially important because, you know, every three years or two or three years, people are rotating out and being replaced by a new person with completely new, uh, different experiences. And so basically you're starting over every three years in every single military position in the organization. So part of my job is trying to get people up to a certain level of understanding, not perfection, you know, not an expert, but a certain level of understanding as quickly as possible. And yeah. we do that through s- some of our education programs.
0: The piece that I think is probably not been a major issue for you this year is, is the COVID challenge. You know, you're an organization of 30 member countries globally. You know, you, you, you're used to working remotely, I would like to think. How has the last 18 months been for you guys as a km or you know team within this this organization.
1: Well it's it's interesting because actually right before covid we just stood up our unclassified uh, collaboration environment. Before covid we worked primarily on a classified network. So you have to be in the office to do your work. There there was no remote working before covid. So we really had to scramble to at least get some of the work moved over to an environment where we could telework where we could work from anywhere. And, and we did that, we had a portal and, and a collaboration tools on the unclassified network where we could do some work, but still a lot of work not be done there. So even during COVID, we were at the, at the worst of it, we were at 50% uh, manning on, on site and 50% teleworking. And then, once things got a little bit under control, it went more to like seventy-five on-site and twenty-five percent teleworking. We're a hundred percent in the office unless you need to telework. It didn't affect us, I think, as much as it would a commercial organization that could that can work from anywhere. We were really limited by our, our security environment.
0: Okay, so that's really interesting. That you know your organization has those limitations, you know, in comparison to a, a mainstream law firm or you know or, or other. Legal um, departments. I can imagine as well right now, you know, the, the, the last couple of months of the withdrawal from Afghanistan has meant that, you know, knowledge capturing and has just been very, very busy and very focused. Or is that just another event in the world that NATO is aware of and, and is, is going through the same kind of project capturing process as if it was another challenge in another part of the world?
1: Well, there definitely was uh, a bit of. You know, urgency in meetings uh, at that you know point in time when when that situation happens. So there was people coming in on the weekends and, and having emergency meetings and making decisions and sharing knowledge uh, as well as, as we do in NATO. NATO is really a a, a meeting based organization. You know, we meet and we discuss and we talk around the table, and that's how things happen. So a lot of knowledge is transferred there at the table in the meetings. But, you know, knowledge is best transferred really through a, through dialogue, through conversations. So tacit knowledge, especially, it should be a two-way dialogue because if you're just one person's talking, then a bunch of people have different levels of understanding on the topics. And therefore, they're not going to understand necessarily what you're saying uh, as well as, as you understand it. So really, knowledge is best transferred through through that like one-on-one or one-to-a-few dialogue, kind of like the discussion we're having now we're sharing knowledge so it's a good example of that because you can ask questions and i can give you some information or some knowledge but then you can refine that by asking further questions and that's really the, the very most effective way of sharing knowledge but it's not the most efficient way because you can't have a conversation with every single person you know on every topic all the time so it, it's hard to manage, uh, right? So there, there's different ways that an organization can do that. One is, like I said, meetings, having meetings and discussing around the table. But really what I found is where the most knowledge is really shared is the informal, spontaneous kind of before the meeting or right after the meeting where people are grouping around to before the meeting starts. That's really where the Century. the knowledge is shared best. And also during, co- you know, over a coffee in the cafeteria, there's two two cafeterias in NATO headquarters where we can get coffee. So there's a lot of coffee consumed here. And I think really that's one of the best ways of sharing knowledge is just sitting around a coffee and talking and you can't really manage that directly, but you can't give people the space, the time to go have coffee and and understand that that is an important activity. It's not a waste of time. So that that's something I think managers uh, should understand.
0: I think that's absolutely right, and I think you know it's as important as as the technology and the, the data capturing. Sometimes, is there a worry though that we rely too much on those conversations and not enough focus on technology? Though, because I can imagine you've got so much data now, and there's so much um, revolving door with postings and and so forth that you don't focus enough on on the data capturing within your organisation. Spend too much time talking.
1: That's interesting. We do capture because all the lead up to most of the the big meetings anyway involve a lot of data capturing. So there's the experts, they're putting their their ideas or, or their discussion points on on our portal and it's shared up through the organization and then the leadership kind of discusses it before the meetings to make sure everybody's kind of on agreement and on the same sheet of music and then the meeting happens so there's no surprises in the meeting really you know all the all the discussions have happened but they're happening on our collaboration environment so kind of the lead up to all of that discussions is being captured and all the decision points and the the desired outcomes of the discussions are being captured and then shared on our dashboards for all the staff to see if they have the proper access. And so so basically, we're trying to make that process transparent as possible so everybody already kind of knows what's coming, what's going to be discussed, who are the experts, and and what are the issues of the day.
0: So in terms of access and systems, does, does NATO have one single knowledge management platform, or or does it have, um, depending on regions and and access levels, a kind of a breakdown of, of KM platforms globally? How does that work when you're capturing and storing this information?
1: Yeah, it's definitely not one global system. Even, you know, as I mentioned, there's two networks, the classified and unclassified networks. But even then, each, each major NATO body pretty much has its own collaboration tools. There's a lot of standardization among those tools ac- across the different NATO bodies. Uh, like I said, there's several dozen of them, but each has some freedom to uh, move within that to, to do their own thing and to capture knowledge and develop new tools if they need that new tool. Mm-hmm. So within the IMS where I work, we, we have a couple of, uh, let's say, homegrown or, or custom tools that we developed to automate some of our processes that were repetitive and other people might not have done that even though they have a similar process it's kind of organization based at the moment but they are working on it we just actually just within the last few months have a cio office who is looking at the enterprise nato enterprise and trying to bring everything under that one single uh, umbrella
0: you're talking like the challenges of a global law firm there where you've yeah. got different offices, different pockets around the world, maybe individual budgets, maybe um, different agendas, different challenges, and now you've come in and you said, "Well, we've now got this new this this new body that's going to look at a unified approach." So that that's really interesting that NATO still follows some kind of similar process and design as as maybe a mainstream law firm or a, uh, some kind of global enterprise company. So really interesting to to hear that. So so obviously. You know, the past is the past and you guys are constantly referencing the past to to take to the future in terms of lessons learned and, and advice and ideas and challenges. But but what have you learned, you know, personally, I guess, within your own challenge over the last 18 months? You know, what have you learned I mean, and how in terms of how you do your work and and, and how the systems are designed and and life? I mean, what, what's it been like for you?
1: Uh, one thing I learned is that we do need to get better at Virtual collaboration and, and virtual meetings, we do have them. We, we do have the capability, but maybe it's because we're just uh, not experienced in doing it. Virtual meetings just don't have the same appeal. They, I've sat on a bunch of virtual conferences in the last 18 months, and it just does not have the same impact. The, yeah. the content seems to be watered down. You know what I mean? If like the discussions are not as in-depth, passionate, um, people just want to get it done, it, it seems like. So in my mind, I can't prove this. I think there's a lot less knowledge being transferred when, when things are virtual. So I think that was an interesting observation on my part, personal observation is that Yes, it's great to be able to work from anywhere or to, to have a virtual conference. It allows people that maybe couldn't attend before due to money constraints or travel restrictions, and they now can attend these conferences or meetings. But I think that the content is not as good as it was before. And the dialogue definitely is not as good. Yeah,
0: I, I can agree with that. I have this saying, people buy people. And so um, and you know, in this context, it's... It- you know, to sit in person in a conference and listen to someone stood in front of you to give you that message and that information would really resonate further than sitting on a on a web call like, like you just said. So that's that's interesting. So, so what do you think are changes for good? You know, things are going to stay or certainly things are going to be very similar for a little while, but what are changes for
1: good? You mean because of COVID? The changes from COVID? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, everyone's, everyone's picked things up and changed the way they're working, but, you know, everyone's talking about going back to the office and it's lovely to hear that you guys are pretty much back in the, in the house now, sort of working together, but, you know, a lot of companies still are not there, but, you know, what is going to stay in this world?
1: Well, I definitely think the technology that's needed to do virtual collaboration is, um, has come a long way in the last uh, two years. It's, it's really become ubiquitous. Uh, so that is also happening at NATO as well. That it's we realize that we, we need to be able to have a, a robust IT infrastructure that can support virtual meetings, virtual conferences, hybrid events where it's part virtual, part in person, and so that whole technology. Even though we have a, we have the capability now, it's it's not ideal. So definitely, people are interested in making that better, more robust, more secure. And doing more hybrid events, I think, is what we're going to probably be moving towards, where when there's a conference or a training, you're going to be able to attend in person. Or if you can't, then you can do it virtually as well. And I think that's a good thing. I think uh, it gives everybody flexibility and depending on their situation to do to, to join those meetings or go to those conferences or attend that training.
0: So something I'm asking everybody I, I get the privilege of talking to is... How do you define KM? And the reason I'm asking this is because I'm of the opinion that everybody in the KM world has a different definition to suit them.
1: Ben, you are right. There, there are hundreds of definitions of KM, and and <laughs> we haven't we haven't really decided on one either. So I have several. The one that we've written down as is kind of our formal definition. I'll, I'll tell you first is a business process that formalizes the management of intellectual assets enabling effective action through their use so that's basically the, the the textbook answer but i like to tell people that it's about managing people processes and technology to ensure that the right knowledge gets to the right people at the right time that's how i define it
0: do you know what that's that's a, probably the most crystal clear definition we've had to date so thank you very much
1: for that that insight You're welcome, Ben. I I always love talking about KM, so anytime. Thank you very much.
0: Join us again for Episode 3, which is Part 2 of our look of tacit knowledge and the insights from the Financial Ombudsman. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. The Knowledge Series. For more information, go to legalsolutions.thompsonreuters.co.uk.